to be honest with you, it's my honor um, to do this with you guys and to engage with you guys in scripture. Um, there's nothing that pleases me more than to see believers who are engaging um, in the scriptures for themselves, who are actually being exposed to the scriptures for themselves. And if you are here for the first time, you're wondering, oh man, you guys have gone through the entire New Testament and now you're going through the entire Old Testament. I've been missing out. Not necessarily, right? You can actually uh, download the Read and Rant podcast. All right. You can download the Read and Rant podcast and engage there. And I hope what is happening is, is I hope that you are uh, you're seeing the scriptures in a whole new light. And and I hope what's happening is, is that now that you're seeing the totality of the scripture, maybe some of the things that you were taught about scripture aren't necessarily true. And maybe, just maybe, there's a whole different perspective God wants you to have just in your time alone dis- being disciplined in the scriptures. I find that a lot of people it's just a side note here, but I find that a lot of people are very passionate about the Bible. Um, they're either passionately angry about the Bible or they're passionately, uh, they can be passionately didactic about the scriptures, but people have these passionate positions about the Bible. And yet very few of them have actually read the entire thing. I find that most people who have this um, passionate negative sentiment towards scripture or towards God um, comes out of the manipulation that they had encountered and experienced in the churches that they grew up in or saw some some toxicity and all of that. And so they've now interpreted their entire faith experience, if you want to call it that, their entire church experience. They've, they've superimposed that onto what the scriptures say. And the reality is, is that the scriptures, if you read them for themselves and you read it, you'll find that Uh, There's more to it than what most people have said and more to it than people have told you. And I hope that that's what this has done for you is that it's illuminated you to the reality that this there's more. There's more. Um, And I hope that your perspective has changed even in our time in reading the scriptures. And so this is the reading rant. I'm reading and I'm sharing some thoughts, uh, but I know that there's some that may, you know, there's some there are times where I'm teaching a little bit just to help you see whatever thought I have, whatever the Lord is inspiring me in in the particular day that I'm reading it to give clarity and understanding before I can give my, my point into what the Lord is saying. But this is a meditational read. This isn't a Bible study. Now, I will say this. I am excited about the Bible study that we're going to be doing in Revelation. Uh, we're going to be studying the book of Revelation on August the 28th at 8 p.m. So that's the last Tuesday of the month. August the 28th, sorry, September the 28th at 8 p.m. I'm really excited about that. And you guys get to be a part of that. Um, if you want more information on that, just uh, check out the Patreon. And you can do that by clicking the link in the bio and just click become a patron. Even if you don't become a patron, the announcement is there with the link and all the information to it. And I also want to take the opportunity to thank everyone who is supporting through Patreon because it is it is actually your support that's opened doors to allow uh, to allow me to focus more of my time in the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Um, and so I hope this is uh, informative to you. I hope it's transformative. And this is my prayer today. I, I don't know why, but I feel burdened by this today is there are some of you here and I don't know why I'm just, I'm just going to go where the spirit leads today, but there are, there are some of you here 
who have been profoundly hurt by the church. Um, some of you have actually gone through therapy. Just wanna, I just want to lean into that for a moment. There are those of you who have publicly and secretly gone through therapy because of the abuse, the pain, and the hurt that you've experienced from church. And yet there's a spiritual experience that you have encountered even in that toxic environment that you're not able to unexperience. And because you're not able to make sense of it yet, there's still a little cord that's holding on. There's a little cord that's still connected. And, and you, you, you're distant right now from the church. And that's okay because some of you needed to leave the church, to be quite honest with you. And there are those of you that needed to leave, like just, just all of it and move and walk away from all of it. But there's something still that you're holding on to and you don't know why you can't separate entirely from it because you've got an experience you can't unexperience and now you're seeking to understand what you have experienced. And so what I hope happens in our time, and I'm encouraging you, this is an invitation because there are, there are quite a few of you on right now. What I invite you to is to re-encounter the presence of God and to re-encounter your relationship with God, not through what somebody said about God, but simply through your own discipline in the reading of the word. Don't even, don't even, ready for this? Don't even trust me. And what I mean by that is don't take my word because the word is in front of you. Okay? Yeah, I'm here to help you. I'm here to guide you. I'm here to read with you. I'm here to pray for you as you're reading and to pray with you as you're reading. But don't, don't do that. Don't do it. Don't, um, don't even trust my word. <laughs> don't even trust my word. Simply just ask the Lord these three questions. God, reveal yourself. Just reveal yourself in my time in reading the scriptures. Reveal yourself in my time in reading the word. And that's what we're going to do today. Father, I just ask, Lord, as we engage today in your word, Lord, I pray that you would be with us. Lord, speak to us. Speak through us. Speak, Lord. Lord I pray that you would reveal your heart, reveal your will, reveal your desire. Convict us where we need conviction. Correct us where we need correction. Reveal to us, Lord, the things that we need revealed today. Lord, illuminate us, Lord, even in our seasons of darkness. Lord, bring understanding and wisdom, Lord, in places that we need to find wisdom. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want, if you're reading this, to ask three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people and God, what are you revealing concerning me? I'm here to walk with you. Don't take me as the final authority. I'm just here to walk with you. So let's walk together. Second Kings chapter five. Verse one. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Assyria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. 
and the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus, said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised. When this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read that letter. Let me go back. Uh, Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, now be advised, which when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, I am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I have said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the little flesh, like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides and came and stood before them and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him in a short distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, 
Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well, my master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. And he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his, lep- from his presence leprous, as white as snow. And the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, but no one was cutting down a tree and an iron ax fell into the water. And he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he, and he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place. For the Syrians are coming down here. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. 
And the Lord opened the eyes of the young men, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me. And I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was. When they had come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And there they were inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive by your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. Indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Then the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, what is troubling you? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she was, but she has hidden her son. Now it happened when the king heard the words of this woman, that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked and there underneath, he had a sackcloth on his body. Then he said, God do so to me and more also. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. But Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how the son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still talking with them, there was a messenger coming down to him. And the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a sea of five flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this be, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall eat 
You shall not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of, of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver, gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some of some there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. And the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field where they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants answered and said, please let several men take five of the remaining horses, which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Or indeed, I say they shall become like the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore they took two chariots with horses and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan. And indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two seers of barley for a shekel and a seer of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Hmm. 
Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. And furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the men of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. <laughs> now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was a woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him. Of every good thing of Damascus, forty camel loads. And he came and he stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he sent his countenance and a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, the young men you will kill with a sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, What is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me you will surely recover. But what happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, Having been king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. In those days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him 
And he arose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fell to the tents. Thus Edom had been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was a son of in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went to Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Syria at Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from his wounds, which the Syrians had inflicted on him in Ramah, which he fought against Hazael, king of Israel. And Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Um, I'm going to stop right here. Purity is good to see you. Jay Santiago, good to see you. Good to see all of you. Um, you know, there's always this temptation when uh, I read the scripture. There's always this temptation to um, to to focus on what we just read. <laughs> And to just spend time specifically on breaking down every element of what we just read. And of course, that temptation, if we submit ourselves to that temptation, then we would find ourselves here for the next few hours, which unfortunately we don't have the time for. And what, what, I, what I'm hoping is happening, however, and I say this over and over again, and I'm going to iterate this over and over again, is If you've been journeying with us from the beginning, you're seeing the grand story, the grand picture, the grand narrative. Um, You're seeing the grand story. You're seeing the big picture. We've read now, I believe we've read about three different stories in this text. And those three different stories that we've read, we've read those three stories. But those three stories play a part in the bigger story, in the bigger picture. And this is critical. It's important for you to understand because these stories that we're reading, there's a purpose to them, right? They're there for a reason, okay? They're there for a reason. They're there to help weave and bring richness to the grand story. <laughs> um, they, they help bring richness to the grand narrative, they're there to contribute to the big story, to the main story. It's important, guys. And I iterate this over and over and over again, that the Bible is not a manual about life and how we ought to live it. 
You know, they say that the Bible is best instructions before leaving earth. It's just, that's, that's just not a good way to look at the definition of the Bible. It's a nice, cool little acronym for you to read. And yet the Bible is not best instructions before leaving earth. It's a cool acronym, but that's not what the Bible is. As a matter of fact, God is looking to restore us on earth, to restore humanity on earth. He's here to establish a new heaven and a new earth to provide resurrected bodies. So these are not instructions before you leave the earth because, again, the whole purpose is for God to establish himself on earth, to establish his kingdom on earth, and to do it through his people. A life in eternity is a life where heaven and earth meet. In the presence of God, we will be. In the presence of God, will be fully manifest on the earth. And so, no, it's not best instructions before leaving earth because, again, it's not before leaving earth. One, two. It's not best instructions. The Bible is not an instruction manual. There are things that we can learn from the Bible. There are things that we can be instructed by. But that is actually not the priority of the scripture. The priority of the scripture, the priority of the Bible is to articulate a story that brings an understanding and awareness to the heart, the character, the will of God. Make sure you understand that. The Bible is here to reveal God, to reveal who he is, what he has done, is doing, and will do, and has already done in his doing. This is about the work of God and what he is doing. We read this often, and, the, and, and there's the temptation, right, to simply look at the scripture, right, and go, what can I learn from this? How do I apply this to my life? What can I do to change what I'm doing? What is the lesson for today? And so we tend to read the scriptures from a a, a more dictatorial posture when the scriptures are intended to be read from a meditational posture. We're called to meditate on the scriptures. It's actually the teachers of scripture that are called to study them, but every believer is called to meditate on the scripture. In Psalm chapter one, he says, blessed is the man who does not um, walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night to meditate on scripture is not the same thing as studying scripture. We're called to meditate on the word. Why am I bringing all this up? Because the language of your heavenly father is the language of the story. This is so important. Pay attention, Ellison. The language of your heavenly father is the language of the story. Why is that important? Because it is the story that communicates from heart to heart. Textbooks transmit from mind to mind, thought to thought. Ah, but the story? Oh, no. The story inspires the spirit. It inspires the heart. You want me to tell you something real quick? I believe 
that one of the root, one of the one of the lies of the enemy, and this is going to sound real, real, real provocative, okay? But I have to give this. I have to make this statement. It's going to sound slightly provocative, but you know, here we are. We find ourselves here in this place talking about scripture, so we might as well say a couple things. I believe that one of the ruse, one of the primary lies of the enemy, the ruse of the enemy is to teach people to read the Bible like it's a textbook. I believe that one of the lies of the enemy is to uh, to lead people to think that the Bible is something that is meant to be understood intellectually. That the Bible is meant to be understood, every facet of the scriptures is meant to be understood from an intellectual perspective. I believe that the way that the enemy diminishes the power of the scripture is to posture the people who read it, to read it as if someone, as if something to study and to understand and to simply have an ability to understand it. And so because of that, what happens is, is that there are many people, I'm talking about pastors, I'm talking about theologians, I'm talking about um, ministers of the gospel, I'm talking about people who sit there and instruct the scriptures and teach the scriptures, but they teach it not from a spiritual perspective, not from an emotional perspective perspective but they teach the scripture from a from an intellectual perspective that's why there are theologians that love the word but don't love god that's why there are theologians who are atheists that's why today there are christians who are atheists <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm ranting, if you'd allow me. There are Christians who are atheists. You want to know why? They know a lot about the word of God, and yet they do not know him. They know a lot about the word of God, yet they have not really created, they have not established an emotional connection with him. They have all these ideas about God, all these presuppositions, the intellectuality of scripture, and they're able to articulate it to you, able to break it down for you. Everything that the Bible says they can break down to you. But if you ask them, do you know Jesus? They do not. Oh, there are many who know the word and yet do not know Christ. There are many who know the word and yet do not know God. And that is an unfortunate reality, family, because there are many people that I see preaching on pulpits today. When, when it comes down to it, what they love is their understanding and their ability to dissect and discern the scripture and yet have no encounter with the Holy Spirit. I became abundantly aware of this when I was studying, uh, I believe, what, what course was this was I studying? I was studying, uh, I was taking a Christology course at a, you know, not a Christology, no, not Christology. Um, I was studying Hebrew. I was studying Hebrew scripture at a university and I had a conversation with the professor only to find out later on, uh, this is when I was in grad school at a university, not too far from where I am, that the professor said that he does not believe in God. He had a very good understanding of scripture. As a matter of fact, he understood scripture more than a lot of people that I know. Oh no, he knows scripture a lot more than a lot of people that I know. And yet he professes to be an atheist. And he said, I'm working my way towards being an agnostic. Here's what people don't know. 
What people don't know is that many seminaries today have professors who teach in them who do not actually believe in God. There are professors in there who don't believe in Christ. There are professors in there who know the scriptures very well because of the intellectual exercise that the scripture brings and yet do not know God. And it's a travesty because many of our pastors are receiving teaching from them. And what they do is, is that they impose all these doctrinal ideas and doctrinal presuppositions, all these doctrinal. So we're able now to create these, these doctrinal constructs, these philosophical constructs. And then afterwards, what pastors do is they fit their entire understanding of God within the doctrines of man. Not realizing that the, that one of the rules, the, the rules of the enemy, the attack of the enemy, one of the lies of the enemy is to take scripture and to box scripture within the facility of the mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want, I heard a prophet joke about this one time. But you, you know, it's just funny hearing it. But he said that, you know, we should change the title of seminaries to cemeteries. Because it's where a lot of people die. <laughs> Seminaries give you a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. That's why Jesus even said it, right? Jesus said it in John chapter 5. Uh, in John chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you believe that you have eternal life. Jesus was actually criticizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees who believed that eternal life was in the scriptures themselves. And yet, what did he say? He said, All scripture testifies of me. The word does not go from here to here. The word goes from here to here. You need to have an encounter with the Lord on a personal spiritual level and then you study to bring information to what you have encountered you don't read the scriptures to get an experience you read the scriptures to inform your experience so now my study of scripture is rooted in my personal encounter and relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's through now that personal encounter relationship that now I get a bigger breath, a wider understanding. And this is why the scriptures were not meant to be read as an intellectual textbook, but instead was supposed to be read and understood as a story. I'm sorry, I'm ranting today and I'm going to get to my point. Hopefully I get to my point. But faith does not come in the mind. Faith is birthed in the imagination. In Hebrews, it says, what? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. The imagination is the bedrock of faith. You would say, wait, what are, you, what are you talking about? What are you saying right now? What are you saying? Faith requires you to see something that's not there, to believe something that is not proven, and yet to have faith opens up to an experience that gives you an encounter that brings the information that helps you now gain understanding. This is why there are a lot of people having these apologetics arguments and these apologetic, they, they go through all this apology and, and apologetic and they, and they break down the scriptures and break down the scriptures. That's great. It's great to defend the scriptures, but even if you defend the scriptures, understand that the persuasion 
to God comes out of a personal experience with him. And I find that the word can be very useful and operable to lead someone to a relationship with God, but not if the word is being read like a textbook to understand. Rather than any, rather the word ought to be a story to engage in because the language of the heart is the story. I'm going to take my time on this. We got plenty of time. We'll do read and rants. We'll continue on. But I just feel the Lord is leading me here. I feel the Lord is leading me here. I feel the Lord is leading. Because here's the thing, family. There are many of us right now that we're looking for more information to have an encounter. And yet your encounter comes out of your submission. Your submission, your opening, your receiving of the Holy Spirit and an encounter with God. It comes in you making yourself a child to say that you know nothing, you are nothing, you cannot know anything. And it's through that that God can reveal himself to you. God's not, God doesn't want you just to have a bunch of information. The purpose of the scripture is for you to discover and to encounter him and to know him. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I'll come into him. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this because this is so critically important to how you read the text. It is so critically important to how you read scripture. If you're still reading scripture like a bunch of rules and you're still reading scripture like a law and you're still, you know, engaging with what is what is historically literary, because I can I can I can see what many of you are wrestling with is wait, how how did that happen and how did that happen? And explain this part to me. Explain that part to me. I want to understand this part. I want to understand that part. Help me understand this. And so you get stuck in your mind and you're missing the story. Let me say something that's going to sound radical. Man, I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble today. I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble today because you guys love when I do spend time in breaking down and helping you understand from, a, from an intellectual perspective what the scriptures are saying. But you know what I found? I found, and this is something that I learned about seven, seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. I started doing Bible teachings and Bible studies about seven years ago. And I had a group of people who would come every week. And it was kind of interesting because I would have these people, they would come. And at first I did it with like five, right? Vanessa remembers these days. I have about five or 10 people show up. And then about two months later, there was about 30 people. And then a few months later, there was a good 50, 60 people showing up to Bible study. And man, did I feel like I was doing good. Oh my goodness, I was teaching all the deep things of the scriptures. I was I was teaching all these things and all this information and man, there was such so much insight and you know, I'm over here like and I think I'm knocking out the park. I'm giving all this information and everybody's kind of going, Wow, I never understood the word this way, and I never understood the scriptures this way, and wow, I never understood that, and wow, you brought clarity to this, and wow, wow, and everybody's getting all this information and information and information, and everybody's so impressed by it. Year one, I did that. Year two, I did that. Year three, I did that. And you know what the Lord convicted me of? One day I sat in that room 
And I realized that I've been giving some good teaching over the last three years. And yet very few people actually changed. Very few people were actually transformed. Very few people were actually, they were all just informed. They were informed, and but they were not transformed. They were still the same stank attitude Christians. They were still the same church going, don't know Jesus types. They were still very religious. As much as I taught and brought clarity to it. And I realized that what I did was I informed them. And yet I've realized now that information doesn't transform. As a matter of fact, the scriptures even tell us that knowledge puffs up. And I realize that there are people today that want the stake of the word, and yet they have not even graduated from the milk of the word. I might make that a TikTok. They want to eat steak, but they haven't even received the milk. They're getting ahead of themselves and they have indigestion. Oh, they want to go deep, but they can't swim. Oh, I hear people now like, hey, can you go really, really deep on this and really, really deep? And I'm like, what's the deep? What's going deep going to do for you? Going deep isn't going to change anything. Your life's not going to change. You're still going to live the way you live. You're still going to do what you do. Because the reality is you're getting more information and yet the scriptures tell us that knowledge puffs up. You know what you have? You're going to have spiritual indigestion. I have a daughter right now who's five months old. And the other day, you know, we were kind of joking. I gave her a little bit of a, a little tomato soup. We were at Britannia Bread and I put a little tomato soup in her, in her mouth. And she took it and she was like, mm, interesting. And she was kind of really interested in it. And then about, I don't know, a couple of minutes later, she started to throw it up. Of course, my wife was like, yo, that's that was a bad idea, Isaac, because I think what she said was that tomatoes are acidic and babies can't really handle that right now. And I was like, yeah, but it seemed kind of cool. I mean, it felt like she could swallow it. And uh, Izzy says she's four months old. <laughs> well, she's close enough, Izzy. But I say that, right? She's closer to five than four, Izzy. But I say that because there are many children now, spiritual children, who want the meat of the word and have not yet graduated from the milk of the word. Oh, they want the heavy stuff but they don't even get the simple stuff. So I'm going to give you the simplest of simple today. Stop reading the word for a moment as a textbook. Read it as a story. So what, you telling me to read it like Harry Potter? Oh, isn't Harry Potter not true? Isn't Harry Potter fiction so you tell me read it like a fiction no i said read it like a story it is a story it's the truest story ever 
it's the story that has no lie. There's no lies in this story. All of it is true. And yet the story is how God communicates his heart because the story is the language of the heart. And what the enemy wants you to do is he wants you to read this with your mind, but you're missing the heart. And the milk of it is the heart. Get the heart right. And once you get the heart right, then you'll see where the mind meets the heart. It's here first, then here. Stop trying to make it happen here for it to come here. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Some of the most unchristian Christians I know are the ones who know so much about the scripture. And yet I find that it's the ones who have a childlike spirit and a childlike heart and has the imagination to say, Lord, I love you and I've met you and I've encountered you and I want to experience more of you as I read this. This is how we ought to be reading his scripture. This is how we ought to be reading the text. Because guess what? Information ain't going to transform you. So if we're reading it like a story, again, we've been talking about what the story is. I'm not going to get into all that because I've been ranting about how you ought to read it. In the story, there are subplots. In the plot, there are subplots. Right now, we see a tension. That's the tension that we see in 2 Kings is that Israel is waiting for a king. Israel is waiting for a king because since the book of Judges, the scriptures tell us that there is no king of is- in Israel. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And Israel now, who ought to be the nation that's bringing the righteousness and justice on earth, the nation that was called and set aside and set apart to bring heaven to earth, that the kingdom of God would come into f- to existence, the flourishing of the earth would come into existence through the children of Israel. These children have no king. God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel that the king would come from him, that through him, through his line, would be the messianic king. And yet we're reading through the book of Kings and we're seeing the tension. None of these kings are it. That's where we are in the plot right now. In the grand story, the nation of Israel has led to this point, and yet there is no king. This is what the Bible is about, okay? <laughs> we read Exodus, and we're reading the laws and trying to obey the laws. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is not about Exodus chapter 10. It's not about Exodus chapter 20. It's not about the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it's not about that. The Ten Commandments were even written to Christians. They weren't written to Christians for Christians to obey. That's not the purpose of the Ten Commandments. They were written to the children of Israel. Yet we insert ourselves into it because we read it like a textbook. When you read it as a story, now you're able to remove yourself from it and to see what God is doing. We are here to be witnesses of what God is doing. And so the story gets to this point. And in this major plot is a subplot. In this major plot, there's a subplot. 
as Israel waits for this king, and we've gone from king to king to king to king, kings in Israel, kings of Judah, kings of Israel, kings of Judah, we keep going from king to king to king to king, and none of them are it. None of them are it. None of them are it. And yet while we see this, who, who determines it? The prophets. And so the prophets now, we had, we see the many prophets, the ones who are notable is Elijah. Elijah passes it down to Elisha. And then the story pauses. In chapter five, we see Naaman, a man who was a valor, who was afflicted with a disease. Notice the major plot, there's subplots in the major plot, the subplot matters, right? If you're reading a story, right? Let's say you're reading Harry Potter. If you're reading Harry Potter, right? You don't insert yourself into it. You enjoy the experience of what's happening in it because it's blessing your heart to hear the story. Now watch this. If we're reading this story and all of a sudden you're reading Harry Potter and you're reading about Harry Potter and then all of a sudden there's a story about Hagrid and in and, 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 and a conversation between Hagrid and, and, and Voldemort or something of that nature. And so you see that it's there for a reason. It's there because it contributes to the story. As a matter of fact, the, the book of Second Kings is telling us how many things are omitted. Right? Every king that we read about, it said, have we not read about the exploits of this king in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Have we not read about the exploits of this king in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So the Bible is omitting things because those things that the scripture are omitting are necessary to the plot and the story. So things are omitted in the Bible. Yes, the Bible tells you that they're omitting things because the Bible wants you to see these things because these things contribute to the plot. These kings ain't it. And yet we get here and it seems that the scripture spends time on Naaman. Naaman, who's the commander of the army of King Syria. Syria, the enemy of Israel. Syria, the enemy of God's people. Syria. And this man is a commander of the army of Syria. And the scriptures tell us that he is a mighty man of valor and yet he's being afflicted with leprosy. We know what happens to lepers. Lepers are pariahs. Lepers, no matter what your credibility and your credit is, no matter how much valor, how much, doesn't matter how, you know, what your success is, your titles, doesn't matter, any, none of that matters when you have leprosy. Leprosy is a respecter, is not a respecter of persons. Leprosy was a disease that separated you from people. Leprosy was the disease that equalized people. Leprosy was the disease that separated people because when you had leprosy, you were deformed, you were defaced. It showed on your body. Leprosy was this disease that separated you from people. And yet this is a mighty man of valor that has been afflicted with leprosy. Who do we call? to help address this because leprosy seems like a disease that's familiar to the children of Israel. Ah, the children of Israel are familiar with leprosy. 
Oh my goodness. Guys, give me 10 minutes. I know I'm, I'm going to be over time, but I had to spend that time before. But leprosy is a disease that is familiar to the children of Israel. Why? Because the Lord, we saw the laws in Leviticus on how to deal with people with leprosy. Leprosy was a reminder of humanity. It was a reminder of, 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 of mortality. Leprosy was a reminder of our sin. And, and so there were laws that were placed, sacrificial laws that were placed to address and to deal with people who had leprosy. Leprosy wasn't necessarily a permanent disease, but leprosy was a disease that separated you from your people. Leprosy set you aside. Leprosy isolated you. It didn't matter what your title was. It doesn't matter where you grew up. Leprosy was the thing that was on you that everybody saw. You couldn't hide from leprosy. And the unfortunate reality is that when you had leprosy, you had to actually walk around and tell people that you had the disease. Because anybody who touched you suffered what you suffered. It was a contagious disease. And so you had to separate, live outside the camp. And if anybody came near you, you had to tell them not to come near you. Watch this now. Watch this, family. This is important. This is critical. Because we see a man of valor who is leprous, who needs to come now to the children of God to find the healing for his leprosy. What's separating him from the people now? He needs the chosen people to help him administrate it. He calls on the prophet. The prophet tells him to dip in the water seven times. Naaman, who thought that it was ridiculous, who thought it was crazy. This man of valor had to humble himself and submit himself to the ordinance of the prophet. The prophet tells him exactly what to do and he does it and he's healed of his leprosy. Mm. He's, he's healed from his leprosy and he's able now to be reconciled back to his people. Yeah, we hear the story of Gehazi, but that's not where I want to go. I want to go back to the lepers for a second. Yes. Yes, because we had a leper who was a man of valor separated from his people who found healing. And yet we see in the text another story of lepers. I don't have time, enough time to break it down, but I just want to stick with this for a moment because the lepers are the ones who've been afflicted. A leper had to have gotten it from another leper. A leper found himself touching something that was unclean. A leper had contracted the disease in some form or another, and it's still unknown. It's not entirely, we're not entirely sure how lepers actually contract the disease, but all we know is that when they had it, they were considered to be unclean. Pariahs. And then we see now in the text, from leper to leper, this actual portion of the text, what sticks out to me are the lepers. Yes, the king gets this, gets this revelation from the prophet. But remember what we just saw, that there was a siege. The enemy comes back and besieges Samaria. A siege is essentially an embargo. What they would do is they would surround the city. And they would let the people inside the city starve. And the people starved so much so that we see in the scripture how bad it got. That they were eating the children. They were eating their own children and fighting over which children to eat. There's so much there. I don't know if it's a time to unpack it. And I'd love to unpack more of that. But that's not really where I want to go. That's not really where I want to go. Where I want to go in the text is that the Lord intercedes on their behalf. That while they find themselves in this place, stuck under siege, 
that the Lord had already interceded, went into the camp, had spooked the entire army of the Syrians to the point that the Syrians ran away and left. They were liberated, but did not know it. And so they lived within the walls of Samaria, starving to death, not able to eat as far as eating their own children. This is how bad it got. Under siege. Pay very close attention, family. The children of Israel lived under siege when they were not under siege. They lived under siege even though the Syrians had already been spooked away. That the army of the Lord had already spooked them. That they heard noises and sounds and things. And they ran away. They took off. And even though they took off, they stayed inside the city and lived in poverty and in bondage. But outside the city walls, pay very close attention, family. Outside the city walls were some lepers. <sighs> we just read it. Outside the city walls, we read about some lepers. <sighs> and the lepers knock on the door and say, hey, let us in. But they're lepers, and so they have no place in. And the lepers find that the people who are their people won't accept them because they have a leprous disease. And they find themselves in a place where now they're conversing with each other to ask themselves, which is better, to die outside these walls or to at least go into the camp and see if the enemy will give us mercy. Pariahs who've been kicked out of their own community kicked out of their own city. They go into the camp of the Syrians and what they find there is the army is gone. Because they were rejected for their leprous exterior, their rejection was a privilege for them to go see something before everybody else. That when they went into the camp, fortuitously, they discovered that they were free. They're leprous, but they were free. And it took lepers to go back to Samaria to say to the people in Samaria, guys, the army's not there. The enemy's not there. The enemy has been defeated. We're actually not under siege. We're actually free. We don't have to stay here anymore. We don't have to starve to death. That there's more to life. 
There's life outside of these walls. We have the permission now to step outside of these walls. We have the permission to discover more. We have the permission to see more. We're not stuck in this place anymore. It took lepers. And it was the lepers who came back. It was the, the, the rejected that got the revelation. I hear the Lord saying that in this season, God is, is calling some lepers, some people who've got some leprosy on them, who, who've been rejected by the church, who've been rejected by the body of Christ, who, who've, who've been rejected by their own people, who, who've been rejected by people who, that, that, that they wanted to belong in and, and, and to be a part of. They were rejected. And in their rejection, they cried and wept because they stayed outside the walls and they stayed outside trying to find a way back in not realizing that where they're come where they want to get back into they can't get back into and it was in that moment of rejection and in that season of rejection that they were given a privilege to step outside and to go out there and to realize that they can find freedom and to know that they've been victorious and to get a revelation that will set the people inside free the, the i'm hearing that god is about to institute a revival today and this revival is going to come from rejected people it's going to come from the lepers, the people that the church would never hire, the people that the community would never bring on board, the people that God would never call. They don't have the theology degrees. They didn't go to seminary or cemetery or whatever you want to call it. They didn't, they didn't have the title. They don't have the position. They were never esteemed. As a matter of fact, they were rejected. And it's those very people that God is giving a privilege to step out of their broken place and to step out of that exterior and to go into that place and to realize, my God, we have been free. Now, watch this now is they were lepers who were ushering a new revival and a new renaissance. And when they came back and they told the people of Samaria, the king of Samaria chose not to believe it. God has a thing for the lepers. I say that to you because we often read about the lepers, but have you noticed in the scriptures, the lepers keep coming up. We see lepers all through the Bible. We're going to keep seeing them. Lepers all through the Bible. We're going to see lepers all through the scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus, many of his encounters of healing was for the lepers because God wants to heal the rejected. And there's some people here, it was your story. It was your life. It was your mistake. It was whatever it was. You experienced pain, rejection. And yet now that you're outside of the building, you realize that the place that you wanted to be in was a place that was in bondage. It was a place where children were being eaten. <laughs> it was a place where you saw no life but death. And now that you've stepped outside of that, You've been illuminated to the reality that you don't want to go back there, but God's pushing you away in a, in a way that you go look over there and you realize that we were never bound. We are free. The revelation is God has already fought the battle for us. We have already won. We have the victory. To God be the glory. And it's the lepers that are going to be the evangelists. It's the lepers that are going to have the voice. It's the people that would have never been considered. And it's the very people who God's going to call back to give the revelation that if the sun sets us free, we will be free indeed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what 
calling the lepers. But we just see, Lord, that you have an intent, an attentiveness to the lepers. You, your attention is on the lepers. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have uh, brought this to our awareness, Lord. That you're calling the lepers. Father, I thank you for every leper who is here, <laughs> who has been rejected, who may have said, I'm never going back to church, never going back to that, because they found the bondage in that. And I don't know why, but Lord, I just feel to feel compelled to pray for, for the lepers today. Lord, that you would give them the confidence to step out of their brokenness, their hurt, their pain, and to step into the reality of their freedom and their breakthrough and their healing. Lord, I thank you for the story of the gospel, the message of what you are accomplishing, Lord. And I know we're reading it and we're in the midst of the tension of it all. Ah, but Lord, we already know how this ends. We know the resolution to the story and for that we have confidence. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for calling all of us lepers who've been rejected, even though we've been rejected by man. Oh yeah, you said in your scriptures in 1 Peter, that we've been chosen by God. So thanks for choosing the rejected. Thanks for calling the rejected. Thanks for calling the least of these, the least impressive. And Lord, just teach us how to live according to your will and according to your way. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.